Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before the word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series, uh, oh, a three or four week series, I think, uh, about four, uh, called Your Body Matters, a biblical look at our life as embodied creatures, embodied creatures. It means you've been given a body, and if you're breathing right now, which we all are, I think, you have one, you have a body. You've been given a body. The church in the West is facing challenges and dilemmas and questions that no previous generation has ever had to think of, Question about, questions about our bodies, questions about our sexuality, our gender, life and death, issues that have become a crucial, really, lightning rod issues of our age. seems that so much of our culture has changed, doesn't it? In a flash, in a blink of an eye, overnight. The changes even in the last five years, you might even you could say five months, five minutes, have been described as a revolution even. And this revolution is taking no prisoners <laughs> and reaching into every area of society and families. It seems to be a revolutionary spirit even. It's demanding not just tolerance but celebration. An affirmation which is causing a lot of people to be silenced or frightened. Some to lose employment. Entire career options potentially being closed to biblically faithful Christians. And what heightens the challenge is that these things, 
these issues are affecting every area of society and changing the fundamental building blocks of all societies for all times. Here's some of the questions. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a human? What is our body for? What's the relationship of our soul to our body? What's biological sex? What's gender? What's a boy? What's a girl? What should we do at the end of life? Albert Moeller, theologian and president of a seminary, said this. He said, the crisis this revolution poses to the church of Jesus Christ is tantamount to the sort of theological challenges posed by the Trinitarian, the Christological, so things about Christ and controversies of the early church. In each of these controversies, the church understood it could not embrace any theological conviction which might undermine the central truths of the gospel. Even in the face of stiff cultural and political opposition, faithful churches always recognize its call to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He puts this moment on par, our moment we're living in, that you're living in now, on par with those times in church history when the deity of Christ was challenged, debated. He calls the true church one that holds in conviction. Well, and just as important is the fact that these debates and challenges, they're not theoretical. We're talking about real people. Human beings made in God's image, and every revolution claims lives, and this one is no different. There are people who we love, people whose lives are hurting, broken, left in, in, in shambles after buying into the lies of this revolution. Real people we care about, people who truly experience a discord between their biological sex and how they feel inside, people who are wrestling with same-sex attraction, people in our own families that we love desperately, people who wonder what to do at the end of life when death seems inedible, all of these things. Or a young girl who finds herself terrified at the news that a new life is growing inside of her. These are real things connected to real people that we care about. It's a huge pastoral and family challenge as well. So we're going to talk about the body. What it means to be embodied creatures, both soul and body. We won't say everything in this series. We won't be able to cover every issue, and there's no easy answer, actually, or quick fixes to all of these. But what I hope to do today is lay a foundation uh, and give us the biblical tools to think, even on our own, about every issue and, and look at and critique the underlying kind of false views of the body that drives so many of these challenges and issues. So we won't say everything. We're going to say a lot today. We're going to do some heavy lifting today to lay kind of the groundwork, the framework for the rest of this series. And it's a different series than what we normally do. We're going to be jumping around a lot, talking about different verses, um, and we'll land next week on a couple passages. Um, but we, let's get going. So I ask a question. Just think about this. Which is more important, the body or the soul? Think about it for a minute. You don't have to answer it, but think about it. Which is more important, the body or the soul? The answer to that question, how you answer this question, shapes how you'll respond to so many of these current cultural challenges and dilemmas 
with so much confusion and debate going on around our bodies, life, death, and sex this morning, here's what we're going to do. We want to find a clear biblical answer to these questions. How did we get here? How did we get here? And why does it matter? So grab your outline, have your Bible open. Like I said, we're going to flip a lot today. Let's look at our first question. How do we get here? We've got three kind of questions we're going to answer today. And by that, I mean, how did Bethany Church arrive at this series? Not our, our, our culture necessarily yet, but how do we get here? I mean, surely it'd be easier not to prep this kind of message or talk about this kind of message, wouldn't it? I mean, surely that would be easier. Well, first one is this. Jesus is compassion. We serve Jesus. We follow Jesus at Bethany Church. He is our Lord at Bethany Church, and he's compassionate. When Jesus is Lord of your life, you're called to live and obey and love people as he did. These kind of discussions and topics bring us into issues and sometimes people that are different from us. And that can make us uncomfortable and awkward. And sometimes the church has responded to people with, whether it's be sexual struggles, gender struggles, body struggles, with a self-righteous shock. You, what? You struggle with what? And recoiling as if the person across from us was some kind of freak. He always loved them, even when he disagreed with them. And he made time for them, even when he strongly disagreed with them. I love this verse in Matthew. A bruised reed speaking about Jesus. He will not break. And a smoldering wick he'll not quench until he brings justice to victory. It's the image of Jesus caring for fragile people. Those hurting. Coming alongside, collapsing branches or flames that are just about to flicker out and feel like they can't go on. And what does Jesus do? He helps them find brightness and strength, doesn't snap them in two, even when he disagrees with them. We live in a broken world, so we shouldn't be surprised when there's a gap in us and in people, when we feel a gap that we feel between our bodies and ourselves and our sexuality and between what we were intended to be and what God wants us to be, it's not a shock. We live in a fallen world. And Jesus had compassion on people, and so we must too. Here's a second reason why we've arrived here as a church with this series. We can't bury our heads. We can't. We must live in the actual culture we're in. Sometimes it's our temptation, not only as Christians, but any group, any group of people that share similar ideas, if we just kind of put our head down or bury our heads in the sand and think, well, if I just ignore this, it'll go away. We do that with a lot of things, don't we? Or is this something I really need to think about? When, when in fact, we're not called to withdraw from culture, pull up a drawbridge, or be against culture even. That's not our calling. But to live in culture as informed biblical Christians. You have to know what you believe, what the Bible says, and why you believe it in our current cultural challenges. And this is not going away. Uh, one Christian blogger, Eric Erickson, said it this way, you not, might not be interested in the culture war, but the culture war is interested in you, you'll be made to care. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? You kind of want to be like, I don't even want to think about this, you know, or, you know, why are Christians always talking about sex? They're just obsessed with it. Well, have you actually looked at the culture? It's, it's just not going away. 
these things, you may not want to care about them, but you'll be made to care, he said. Kind of a funny tongue-in-cheek quote. There's no possibility to escape is what I'm saying. These hard questions. And there's no middle third way. Every Christian, every church, every person now is going to have to hold or take a position one way or the other on every one of these issues. This is the world, it's just the world we live in now. So let's lovingly be biblical and not bury our heads. Here's the final how. Co-opted Christians, I'm calling it. Co-opted Christians. We think, we may think there's agreement in the church on these issues. I mean, surely we're all biblical. Surely we all love the Bible. Surely, can't we all agree on these topics that we're going to talk about? We don't realize it, but many in the evangelical church are being co-opted, catechized by their culture, for lack of a better term, without even really knowing it, and holding absolutely secular views on a lot of these questions. It's either the latest sitcom or, or, or celebrity or musician or blogger that informs their worldview and not God's word. We're seeing a transformation take place, not just in the culture, inside the church. Here's a few numbers for some uh, recent studies. Pornography. Two-thirds of Christian men in, the latest, in a recent study watch porn monthly. An abortion. 70% of women who've had an abortion self-identify as Christian. Uh, homosexuality and transgenderism. 51% of evangelical millennials said same-sex behavior is moral. And cohabitation. 49% of religious teens support living together. And what we're talking about, this is, these are uh, in, inside the church. Those who would be in, uh, the, in the church. Uh, and so we look and say, well, that's just the culture outside. That's not what reality and recent studies are showing us. There's a lot of disagreement even within the walls of the church. If we don't talk about these things and encourage one another in the, in the truth, our culture has another story waiting right in the wings for us. That, and that's what we're seeing. So that's how we arrived with this series. But as we look at how fast things have changed in our world, and by the way, everyone's saying that, not just Christians. Everyone is saying, wow, this has gone much faster than we thought it would. Those that are celebrating it and those that are saying, wow, I'm just shocked by this. So how did the culture get here? That's our second question. How did the culture get here? If this is the moment we're living in now, we don't live in a vacuum. Things just don't pop up magically. might feel like it at times, doesn't it? But how did we get here? Now, this isn't exhaustive, what we're going to talk through, but I want to just look real quickly at a few factors that have brought about, I think, a lot of moral confusion today on the body, what it means to have a body, and how it impacts all these different issues. There's a few of them I want to talk about. Here's the first one, relativism. Relativism, what is that idea? We're going to, like I said, we're laying some groundwork today, which means we're going to talk about some kind of big words. You might even say philosophical words, but my hope is to make everything we talk about today as simple as possible for us to grab, just to get a sense of where we're at 
as a culture before in the coming weeks we go in to taking some passages with some of these issues. Well, relativism is the water we all swim in now. It's the view that says meaning and truth are what? Relative. Yeah, it's just relative. There's no one right way to view anything. What's right for you, truth for you, might not be true for me. So you've heard it in phrases in the culture like this. That's just my truth. You have your truth. Or there's no such thing as absolute truth. Or, or another one, you, you can't tell me what's right and wrong. You might have it for you, but you, you can't tell me. Uh, or any attempts to claim af- absolute truth, here's another one, are uh, just attempts to gain power over someone else. You claim truth, you just want power over people. All right? That's that idea of relativism. When truth, if it exists, and it does, truth is true for all people at all times, in all places, regardless of what they think even. If truth is an objective thing, a real thing, God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth and the life. The psalmist David knew all truth is God's truth. He said this in Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. David knew it. Jesus said it. He said, I am truth. David said, God, you are truth. Teach me your truth so that I stay on that path. I go that way. I let my world and my heart my mind be informed by capital T, truth. The question you can always ask somebody, is there somebody doing something somewhere right now that regardless of whatever they believe about it is absolutely wrong for everybody at all time? Yeah, of course. And somebody's going to answer that with a yes. There's something you could think of. There is truth. He created us in this world, and he's the yardstick of truth. Relativism, it leads to chaos, and everyone is doing what right is right in their own eyes. Here's the second one. We are, we've talked about this in, in the Gospel of Mark, we are post-Christian. We are post-Christian. It's very obvious that Christianity is on some sort of decline in the West. Church attendance is down. The rise of those affirming um, no religious affiliation is is shooting up quickly. Biblical literacy is a real problem in the culture and in the church even. And so while the West was founded on Christian truths of law and ethics and morality, a secular morality is filling in that vacuum, coming in quickly behind as Christianity passes from a culture. Every society has morality, and a secular morality is filling up that vacuum. It's just a matter of whose morality it will be. Increasingly, on these issues of sexuality and our body and uh, those ethics, a biblical view is is being seen as wrong, uh, backwards, even hostile, uh, violent, bigoted, all terms that are now closely tied to being holding Christian ethics. Here's the third one. Autonomous individualism. Like I said, we're not covering everything, but a few this morning just to give us a sense of the culture we live in and why it is this way. It's connected to relativism, and it's been this d- a development of a radical now, a radical individualism. 
How will we define that? What the individual wants is the highest good for that person. What the individual wants is the highest good. And, and in fact, in some places, really the only good that matters. Andrew Walker in his book, God and the Transgender Debate, said, it's an emphasis on the individual, bearing individual rights. It's given rise to an understanding of the individual that's liberated from all forms of other duties, me, myself, and I. The greatest sin, in fact, the only sin is judging someone else. You know, in former days, it hasn't always been like this. In former days, your community and family, your tribe, whatever it would have been, was taken into consideration a lot of times even before the individual rights. People would think in terms of greater duties than self-gratification and personal liberation. Now, of course, individualism is good in some ways. The dignity of every human being made in God's image the inalienable rights we say we have because we have a creator who made us in his image. Those are all really good things, good forms of individualism. And on this Memorial Day, we even acknowledge those are things and freedoms that many died fighting for because they believed that the creator gave those to us. But when taken to its extreme, we end up in the place where we hear and actually believe the lie, hey, what I do in the privacy of my bedroom it doesn't impact anybody else. Of course it does. Of course it does. This is one of the biggest lies of the sexual revolution, that what you do in the privacy of your bedroom doesn't impact anybody. Who are the biggest victims of that lie? The kids. The children. Individualism taken to its extreme. Finally, it's a strange word, but we're going to pack it. And it's really an important concept because it runs through the whole Bible, really, from early Christianity. And it's an important concept for this entire series. It's a, it's a big word, but it's a strange word, Gnosticism. Like, what is that? Like, I don't know. Why would we even talk about this on a Sunday morning? Why does it matter? You know, it's like, this is like, sounds like, what was it, Philosophy 101, you, you, maybe you took or something. What are we doing with this word? I know, it's weird, but hang with me, because really it's the underpinning of this entire series and really what's happening in the culture today. Nothing new under the sun, isn't that what the phrase is? It's an ancient heresy. It's an actually a false belief that's even older than Christianity. So we're going way back now. It's the view that says the physical world, the matter, the stuff, the physical world, it's bad. It's broken. What really matters is the inner you, who you are inside, the, the spiritual you, you might call it, the self-aware you, the feeling you. That's what matters. And this is what's most important. That's the real you. Your body, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's there. It's bad, even they would say. Material world only matters the spiritual, you would say, another way to say it. And the goal then if the, in this worldview is to seek a, a spiritual escape from your body, which is a, a cage or a prison. Uh, that's this view. And sadly, a lot of us as Christians kind of slide towards that view too. Well, we're spiritual people, right? We are, aren't we? 
God saves us and he regenerates us from a soul and the inside out and our heart. We talk about change from the inside out, all of those things. We can slide that way too. Here's where Gnosticism leads. It's a quote from a woman who doesn't identify as male or female uh, with her body. She said, it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born into. It's what you feel that defines you. Now, Gnosticism is a strange word, but that's it on its face value. It, it doesn't matter. Your body's just a meat skeleton. It's a cage. It's a prison. The real you is the you inside. That's Gnosticism rebranded for our age. Now, that we can understand that. That makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Can you imagine the heartache, the pain, and confused worldview that produces a statement like that? Andrew Walker, again, we're going to quote from a couple different people today. He said, Gnosticism says there is an inherent tension between our true selves and your body. The idea that our true self is different from the body we live in communicates our body is something less than us. There it is. It's bad. Material world is bad. Physical is bad. Your body is less than the real you. And therefore, can be used, shaped, changed to match how we feel. The concept that our gender can be different from our biological sex is a modern form of that old Gnostic idea. It's just come back. Nothing new under the sun. And here's the question. Why do we trust our feelings over our body? Think about that. Why do we trust our feelings over our biology? If it's just as much as part of us as our soul is. That's where we are today. Don't trust the biology you've been given. Trust the feelings. Why would that be so? Why should that be the case? I don't know. It shouldn't. If biology has any real purpose, if your body has any real meaning, I mean, if it's just a meat skeleton, right? Who cares? Here's where it's taken us. We're going to look at this, our culture's direction and where it's headed with some of these kind of big words, and we've unpacked it quick, I know. Here's the result. There's two different stories going on in the world today. There are two different stories Two different narratives, whatever you want to call it. Two different way, ways to view the world. And that's the sad result of all this cultural transformation. There's two different stories about reality, about our bodies, about what human beings even are. There's two stories. There used to be one. One story. One reality. And here it is. Both the natural world you see that's created the stuff, the matter, and your body, and all the stuff, ideas we have about religion and philosophies. There used to be one story. You could find truth in all of those. And you could find objective truth in all of those. And they all had meaning. And they all had purpose. That was the one story. The story of what it meant to be a human. Finding truth in all those different places. There was knowable and objective truth Everywhere. It was like one unified system. Body, matter, world, religion, morals, ethics, philosophy. You could find truth in all of them. That was the way the world was viewed. But now there's two stories. You could call them maybe a Christian view, and I call them materialist view, that all there is is matter with real, no, no real meaning or supernatural transcendent God behind it. 
They're made to give it purpose. And here's what C.S. Lewis said about those. He said, the Christian and the materialist, they hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. In other, in other words, what's he saying? Ideas have consequences. What we believe about our bodies, what we believe about matter, what we believe about our souls has consequences. And he says, they can't both be right. Either your body has meaning, it's been given purpose, it's been created by someone, or you're a meat skeleton. Kind of crude, crass way to put it, isn't it? But it gets the idea across, doesn't it? It's one way or the other. And whoever is wrong will act in a way that doesn't match reality. And that's what we're going for as Christians. We want to live in the world as it is. That's what coming to know Christ is. It's seeing reality. I'm fallen. I need a Savior. There he is. And that's, the, that's, that's why we have to talk about this. Because our ideas have courses that lead us in directions. We have two different stories that result in really two different stories. I want you to think of a two-story building for a moment, okay? These two stories have resulted in, so you got a ground level and a second story. I want you to think about a two-story building for a moment. On the bottom level, we have everything that's knowable. You can know this. If there's objective truth, you can find true things about this thing. On the bottom, first story of the building. And the second story, then, is kind of subjective. We don't really know about that, and uh, we're not quite sure. We can't really uh, know that. And so here's what it's done. It's, put, it's split everything in this world into two stories. Here they are. Let's take a look at some of them. Here's what's happened. Science now, the, 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 the priests of our culture, you might say, those who are the authority now are, well, science says. How many times do you hear that? Scientists say, Science says, and that's good. Science is good. I think truth is there. It's God's truth, too. And we should listen to those authorities uh, in light of what they discover and evaluate truth that's found there. But that today now is where we stop. That's the lower story. Objective truth is only there. Everything else has been bumped up to the upper story. Theology, morality, ethics, it's all just relative. It's all just relative. Science is the only really, truly reliable, knowable knowledge. Okay, there's one. Here's the second one. This is where it makes it kind of relevant for us. The world gets split into this too. Facts then become things we can know. Everything else is just kind of values, what you personally value. If you're a teacher, you probably have seen this in some of the curriculum in the last decade or so. Pretty prevalent, a fact-value split between everything. That's fact. We can know that. And everything else gets pushed into, well, that's just, that's just your values. That's something personal for you. That's something subjective. It's something you can't figure out. And so science and math, those topics are like the bottom level. They're the facts. Those are the, the things we can really study and know. Everything else has got bumped up to that second story. Didn't used to be this way. They were all on the same ground. They all contained truth. And so a theologian was thought of, you know what they used to be thought of as? Scientists. They were scientists of God. 
And so you could find truth there. But now everything's been split into facts and values and the knowable and the unknowable. And that's happened with the body too. Let's look at this for a minute before we head into our third point. Here's what's happened. The key to understanding all these issues today, everything that's going on, all this controversy is to see that what it means to be human has been divided into two stories as well, a lower one and an upper one. On the bottom, you've got your, your physical body, okay? It's, it's, it's the, what we can know. It can be studied. We can know things about it. But the real you is the upper person, the internal, the story that's defined maybe by your values. Let's see how it works. Like I said, we're going to talk about some hard things in this series, some really even controversial things, but let's just see how this kind of works, this split between body and what it means to be a person. Miranda Sawyer described herself as a liberal feminist, firmly pro-choice, until she got pregnant. And she had this strange dilemma. All of a sudden, she realized that she was pregnant and the baby was growing inside her. And here's what she said. She said, I was calling the life inside of me a baby because I, I wanted it. Yet if I hadn't wanted it, I would think of it as just a group of cells it was okay to get rid of. And she had a moment where she thought, that seemed irrational to me. Maybe even immoral. And so she went on this, this, uh, this uh, journey of even making a documentary, a, a film about this journey she went on being transformed and her process of growing and her thought about life within her. And here's what she said after all of that. She said, in the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. So yes, abortion's ending that life. But perhaps the fact of life isn't what is important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. You see what happens there? A, a new category has been created right there. A human non-person. A human non-person has been created. A human that's a human, but maybe not a person that would deserve the legal protection every human deserves. It's called personhood theory. It's a big word, I know. But when you detach the body from any real meaning, guess what? We have to figure out a time when to ascribe that meaning and value to it. When you detach it from body matters, God made it, humanity's got to come up with and decide, well, when does it actually have value then? We have to. If it doesn't have any inherent value, we have to decide ourselves and define when it becomes a person. By what then? How do you decide that? How do we play that and play God, really, to their arbitrary values usually, like your consciousness? Uh, can they think? And how much can they think? Do they have self-awareness? And so we set up these arbitrary timelines. Well, okay, here's when the body becomes a person person that has value and should be protected by the law. You see what happens when you take that body and you detach it from person and you put them on two separate stories? You get in a lot of trouble. That's why life is most precarious at the beginning. When's the other time? At the end. Because those arbitrary things we've chosen start to disappear and wane and falter. And so you go, well, they're not thinking as clear as they used to. Their value disappears. And it's the same at the beginning. You, you can't speak for yourself. 
we assign, we've, so we've assigned those arbitrary times. That's why life is most fragile at the beginning. That's why it's most fragile at the end. This flies in the face of what the Bible says about your body. Your body has inherent value, and it's good just because God made it. Just because. So let's look at it. We're going to wrap up with this. You're like, where's the scripture? Here it comes. We're going to go quickly. We're just going to let the Bible speak. We're going to let the Bible speak on what is your body. What does God say about your body? What does he say about creation, the matter, the physical stuff of your flesh? Not only that, but the hills around us and everything we see and know in the natural, what we call the natural world. If, you, if you're in a small group, write down some of these references because you'll be coming back to them in your questions this week and asked to read them. Here's the first one. We're going to go through these quickly. All of creation is God's handiwork created for his purposes. All of it. All of it. The psalmist wrote this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky proclaims his, his, his handiwork. What's he saying there? He's saying all nature, all matter, all physical stuff, from your body to the hills, to the sky, to the stars, to the sun, to the moon, it's all made by him, and it has a purpose. Your body even. What's the purpose? To proclaim his glory, his handiwork, to showcase God to showcase his purposes, his character. What you do with your body matters, doesn't it? If that's the case, if you're not just here uh, uh, by some random accident, you're not a meat skeleton, if you're not here just uh, for some, uh, just by chance randomly, then you have a purpose. You have a maker. That's what the psalmist was saying in that verse in Psalm. Even your body. So that means your body is good. Do we live in a fallen world? Yes. Does your body deteriorate? Yes. Will your body die someday? Yes. But it has been made by him to showcase him. Here's another verse. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, 19 through 20. Do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our body, it, it, it's sacred. It, it's good. And if you follow Christ, the Spirit lives inside of you. And he says, you're not your own. You're not your own. You, you, you've been given this body. It's a gift to you by your maker. And he gave it to you to use and experience the world. And yes, taste things and smell things and feel things and, and exert with it and feel good exerting your body. It's a gift. He says, it's not even really, it's strange, but it's not even really yours, so to speak. We're stewards of it. It was a gift to you. Body autonomy is the, the cultural word. An absolute bodily autonomy, this verse says, is a myth. 
it's a myth that what you can do with your body doesn't matter and nobody should ever speak into that. That's a myth if you've been given this body and you're not your own. The scripture says, here's, uh, here's another one. For you form my inward parts, was from our scripture reading today. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. What's David saying? He's saying, I'm a human in the womb, but he's also saying, I'm a person in the womb. You knitted me together, God. You wove me together. David's not saying that just in some general sense now. Just some general sense that, yeah, God made you, okay, yeah, no, no, no. He formed each of us in the womb, David is saying. So the hair you have, the nose you have, the eyes you individually have, the body you have, he formed it. He chose it for you. He gave it to you. That's why, it's, that's why to, to, to mock somebody's physical appearance is always wrong. That's the way God made them. He for, David says, you formed me in that womb. You made me. Respect for the person then equals respect for the body of that person. Because David says, you made it, God. You put it together. Here's the second one. First one was that creation is his handiwork. The second one, the two sides of the coin are both body and soul. There are two sides, excuse me, of the same coin. Our secular world separates these two things into body and person, or body and soul, you might say. Separates them. And and we kind of in the church have done that too. Now, your soul will separate from your body when what? You die. Your soul will separate from your body when you die. That's a fact of life. That's a truth in a fallen world. But in God's world in the here and now, they're not two separate pieces. They're united. Two sides of the same coin. You get the image? It's their one. Here's David says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In David's mind, they were absolutely connected. They weren't these two things that happened to get put together. They were one. They're not the same, but they're one. Flesh and body. Soul and flesh. They're integrated, is, in other words. They're united. They're grown together by God. They're like those things that you, you know, you, you, you weave together. You know, you know, if you pick up your headphones and you like, they're in this knot, you're like, people see me driving in my car and they must think I'm like out of control crazy because I'm shaking these headphones to try to get them to come undone. I mean, our soul and body are even more integrated than your gnarled headphones. <laughs> they're, they're united. Not two pieces thrown together. Here's another one from David. When I kept silent about, meaning refused to repent of my sin, did it impact his body? My body wasted away. Have you ever felt that? The weight of your sin almost is fatiguing you. It's impacting almost you down like to your bones. David says that. My soul, I didn't repent. I kept silent about my sin. What happened? My body was impacted. Why? Because they're integrated. Your body and your soul, they're together. Unrepentant spiritual sin is sin done in the body. And Corinthians talks about sexual sin being the only sin that's like against your own body even. 
when not repented of, can impact your actual physical body. Here's what Nancy Piercy says in her book. There's no dichotomy. It means a separation. There's no separation between body and person. The two together form an integrated, you could say, psychophysical, physical, spiritual, physical, mental, you could say that, unity. And we respect and honor our bodies as part of the revelation of God's purpose for our lives. It's part of the created order. It's declaring the glory of God. So is your body good? Yes, I hope you're catching that. If you catch anything today, your body's good. Here's a third one. We are animated clay. Have you thought about that? That God calls very good. You and I, we're animated clay that God has called very good. Here's some Genesis. I think we'll probably camp in Genesis next week or the next couple weeks. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. There's the body, the matter, material stuff from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It's God using the stuff of earth, the matter of earth, and and breathing soul and life into that creature. And what did he call it? Very good. Very good. It's this earthy, this guy, Adam, clay, physical, sexual creature that God makes in his image and calls very good. Not just your soul. He looked at Adam as a whole and said, that's very good. That's very good. It means you're the crown of his creation. You think about that? You are the pinnacle of his creation. Made in his image. He breathes into us a soul, which really is what animates, like gives us the, appear- the life in unity. It's the reason for Christians' care of body and death. Have you ever thought about that? They did some weird stuff throughout the history of the church with bodies. They really did. They still do in some religions. It would wash them and, and sit by them and display them. They don't really do those things anymore. Do you know why they did that? It wasn't because they were just really morbid people. (laughs) They kind of got this connection better than we did. They kind of saw and understood this connection a little more that, oh, yes, they're gone. Oh, but that body was a gift from God. That body was a gift from, from God. There's a reason they did all those things. Here's the fourth one. Jesus had a real body. And he has a real resurrected body. Jesus had a real body, and he has a real resurrected body. Do you know that this this truth right here, we all kind of go, oh, yeah, died on the cross, rose in the grave. That's just like common stuff. This was the church's earliest, biggest scandal that God would take on a body. Why? They were all Gnostics. Matter was evil, yucky, gross. Why would God put on a body? It made no sense. That's why Paul can say to the Greeks, it's foolishness. Because this is what they thought. And the word became, say it, flesh. Flesh. And not only that, he said, I'm going to take on flesh and live amongst a bunch of, uh, amongst a bunch of flesh. 
in the world I created. He did. Why? Because matter matters to Jesus. That's why. Matter matters to Jesus. He made you. He called Adam good before the fall, didn't he? In body and soul. And he's going to save you both soul and body. Both. And so Jesus takes on a body. He also, it also means he knows what your struggle is like. He took on a body too. And imagine taking on one of these being the God of the world. It's hard enough just as a creature, isn't it? But the God of the world takes one of these on. I mean, so he knows your struggle with body image. Your struggle with looking in the mirror and not liking what you see. Your aches, your pains, your illness. Even, even somebody that has a gender discord where they don't feel quite what their body is. That must have been a really weird experience for God of the earth to take on a body in a place and time. He had to have some really interesting feelings with that, I'm sure. It means he can relate to all of the things we go through in our bodies. Isn't that good news? You have a God who knows what your everyday experience is like when you wake up and your knee won't move, you know? Or you're hungry and you don't like what you see in the mirror. He was pummeled and looked horrible at the end of his life. He knows what that's like. Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God in a body. And that body died on a cross. But it rose. So he had a body. He still has a body. Do you know that? Jesus, by taking on a body, said, I'm going to have a body for eternity. That's just an interesting thought. He never had one. Spirit. And yet he takes on a body. And by doing so, he says, I'm going to relate to you in that way forever. He has a body. Because what do they think when he came back, when the disciples saw him? What do they think he was at first? Do you remember? A ghost. It's got to be a ghost. There's no way a body can come back like that. Disciples saw him and thought he was a ghost, but here's what he said to him. No, 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 guys. See my hands and feet. I'm a body still. Uh, That it is I myself. Touch me. Why would he say that? If you didn't want him to really see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. This means that the body you have one day will rise. That's an incredible thought. It will rise from the grave and be put back together. Because we know in body, in death, our bodies don't actually stay whole. They, make, they deteriorate or some cremate and some die in accidents. Your body will one day rise from the grave and be put back together, be perfect, never to die, never to ache. Body and soul will be reunited, put back together again forever. And here's our final one. He will do this. God will resurrect your body to a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. We've done a poor job in the church. We have propelled kind of this false belief. Actually, it's really Gnostic, come to think of it now, that heaven is only clouds. Heaven is only uh, ethereal. Heaven is only you with a harp on the cloud, you know? We've done that. We propelled that myth when, in fact, what does Scripture say? New heaven and earth. New earth. Heavens, it means heaven's going to be really earthy. You think, well, that can't be right. 
it matters bad, right? That's where our mind goes, doesn't it? It goes there right away. It goes right there. Here's what he says, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the fir- first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Do you know what kind of hope this gives us? Do you know what kind of hope this gives you today in your body that's, that's falling apart, that's aging, that's hurting? It means that the life you really wish you had in the here and now in your body is the life you will have in your new body on that new earth. And, I thought, and won't that make it just so much more wonderful that we go, this is what it was supposed to be the whole time. It didn't feel like that. <laughs> you know, we just know that, but it'll be that. That's why it's so important that we view the body in the way God views the body because it's going to come back to you but better. The same continuity, they recognized Jesus, didn't they? But different. That body would never die again. When he recreates all things. Do you see what the problem is? We're going to get into this in the coming weeks. The secular view of the world, you know, they say Christians, they say, you think sex is dirty. You've got a low view of sex. It's like you just think it's bad. You think it's evil. Don't do it. You know, here, don't do it. Don't do it. Do you know why? It's because we actually have such a high view of the body. What you do with your body matters. David said, I was wasting away. I'm wasting away. The problem is, the rest of the world has too low a view of the body. The Bible says, no, 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 God made it, and it's good. He took one on to redeem it. He died for it. He raised, and someday he's going to do it to you. What you do in the body matters. You're his masterpiece. Are we fallen and sinful and need a savior? You bet. But he's recreating us. You're not your own. Jesus died to save you, both soul and body. So you, your body matters and what you do matters too. So glorify God in your body. Over the next few weeks, we're going to cover some of these hard topics. Today was really, I know, a lot We'll have it online if you're like, what did he say? <laughs> and actually, five minutes after service today, we're going to do a Q&A in room two. So if anything was like w- just strange, confusing, or you're like, I don't know what you were saying, after about five minutes, come into room two. We'll take any, I'll take any questions. We'll sit down just chat. We'll probably do that over the course of this series because we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that's heavy and hard and actually really personal, isn't it? Because this is real, we're real people. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you to uh, uh, just cause us to think rightly about our body. We get so many mixed messages from a culture that actually looks too low at the body. But Lord, you made it. You called it good. You gave it a purpose to glorify you. And so we want to live in in our body as if it matters because it does. And you took on a body and someday you'll bring ours back to life either to life with you or judgment apart from you. And so, Lord, expand our thoughts and minds about our body in this series, Lord, we pray. Give us hope. And I pray for those hurting today, those of all of us at one time that struggle with one uh, or the other body issues that we're going to talk about. Lord, give us hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ's body. It's your name we pray. Amen.